Material culture, as a study, is based upon the obvious fact that the existence of man-made objects is concrete evidence of the presence of human intelligence operating at the time of fabrication. The underlying premise is that the object, made or modified by man, reflects, consciously or unconsciously, directly or indirectly, the beliefs of individuals who made, commissioned, purchased, or used them, and by extension, the beliefs of the larger society to which they belong. Jules David Brown's analysis of what material culture tells us about ourselves is a really interesting observation. It could apply to just about anything. The way that objects are made, the way that we decorate them, and the way we design them all tell a lot about our values and about the ideology behind it. Gravestones are perhaps the greatest example of this. Most people, even those with only a very casual interest in cemeteries, always seem to be fascinated by the symbol. If you read books, articles, newspaper stories, even television clips about cemeteries, more often than not, the focus will be symbolism. Cemetery symbolism is something that has fascinated generations. The origins of gravestone studies themselves all are rooted in the symbols that we see carved on the stones. The symbols have changed and evolved over time, but they tell an important story. And more importantly, they reflect our larger society. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. Cemetery symbolism. This is one that you really can't do a cemetery podcast and not get into. People are fascinated by cemetery symbolism. The interesting thing to me is that today, symbolism, I don't want to say is less of a thing because it absolutely still is. It's just that our symbols have taken on a different tone and meaning in the modern day. Now, there's a reason that symbolism and cemetery scholarship really tend towards the earlier stones. Not to say that modern stones don't have symbols on them, but they have far less. And the symbols require less interpretation than they may have historically. The caveat I always like to make is, the reason that older stones and older symbolisms require interpretation is because our social mores, values, and overall iconography have just changed. Symbols change and evolve over time, and that's one of the things that I'll discuss today. So the same way that colonial or Victorian symbols may seem confusing, exotic, and really mysterious to us today, tombstones with modern symbols on them will likely be just as inscrutable for people living 150 years from now. Because symbolism is a largely a reflection of the values and the ideas of the society at the time. Our society has evolved a great deal since the Puritans, has evolved a great deal since the Victorians. So the symbols that they use, while we can look them up in books, and while some of them may be vaguely familiar, the reason that they're unfamiliar is just because society has moved on, and we have placed our values in different ideas and different things. The Puritans and Puritan culture I covered way back in episode two, when I talk about Grove Street Burial Ground and the early beginnings of cemeteries in the United States. That's not to say that I probably won't do an episode entirely on Puritan symbolism at some point. It's definitely due. But 
As you'll discover when I give you a brief history of symbolism and interpretation of symbols in the United States, there are umpteen books, articles, entire careers that have been made over interpretation of these symbols. If that is your primary interest, and I know I have cited this book before, and I will probably cite it again, if you are truly interested, I cannot speak highly enough of Alan Ludwig's book, Graven Images, New England Stone Carving and its Symbols 1650 to 1815. It is without a doubt the definitive work on colonial gravestones and their carvers. Alan Ludwig started this project when he was at Yale University. He is really one of the groundbreaking forces when he published this book in 1966 into looking at these ideas, looking at these pieces of folk art and beginning to interpret and understand their significance, not just as pieces of art, but as iconography that expressed the ideological values of the Puritan world. I'm gonna be talking a little bit about how we come to the study of symbolism, what we know about symbols, how we interpret them. I'm gonna give a little bit of background before kind of breaking things down. And what I'll do is I went through and I made a list of most of the symbols that I could think of, the most common ones that you see on American gravestones. And then what I did was I broke them down into categories because really symbols fall into pretty broad categories. And then I can get down and start talking about some of the most common meanings for them. To start off with, symbols are an international language. They are something that can often be understood cross-culturally. When we have trouble interpreting individual languages, symbols of different kinds often are things that can speak really regularly. And if you have never really thought about it, most of us here in the United States are not illiterate, but there is a large portion of the population that is illiterate. But symbols, so for example, the typical male and female symbols that you see on bathroom doors, can help them interpret things even if you cannot understand or interpret the language. There is also a huge branch of symbolism that deals with the problematic existence of symbols with multiple meanings. This generally falls under what we call reception theory, the idea that the same thing can mean different things to different people. Symbols do not have an inherent value in and of themselves. We have to give them value. So let me give you a really easy example. What is the difference between a cross and a plus sign? Absolutely nothing. There is no difference between those two symbols. They are the exact same symbol. They only become different things when we give them meaning. One means adding two things together. One is a symbol of a method of execution that was used during the Roman period. It doesn't have meaning until we give it meaning. And reception theory basically is the understanding that certain symbols may have different meanings based on their cultural interpretation. The one that most often people like to give is the swastika. And the idea that long before its association with the Nazi party, the swastika has been a long-standing symbol throughout multiple cultures with multiple different meanings. Those of you who grew up in the Robert Langdon era probably remember that he gives a whole speech on this, on symbolism and misinterpretation of symbolism at the beginning of the Da Vinci Code. The evolution of symbols is really the evolution of customization. And a lot of times this is cultural customization. So for example, there was a point in the United States history where the language of flowers was very common. You might not like, say, yellow roses. Maybe you just don't think they're pretty. Maybe you don't like how they smell. But at a certain point in the past, a yellow rose or a white rose or a chrysanthemum or stephanotis, all of these things 
would have had a secondary meaning. Now, customization comes with the evolution of symbols. It's said that dead men tell no tales, but their tombstones do. Often, if you don't think about symbols in everyday life, even though you interpret them every day, yield signs, stop signs, bathroom signs, the symbols on your coffee maker, how do you know which one turns your coffee maker on versus which one brews the coffee? All of that is interpretation of symbols. We interpret symbols dozens, if not hundreds of times a day without really thinking about it. But in cemeteries, because there is such a broad array of symbols in so many different places, we often can be overwhelmed and we often are excited because we're seeing things that we don't see every day. So they can tell a great deal about the individual from their religion, ethnicity, social memberships or clubs, occupations, hobbies, belief systems. All of that can be read very readily, but often it is not said in words. It is almost always said in symbols. I don't want to get too deep into the academic background of symbols, but there is a lot that we can say about this. Academics, in particular, art historians, have a ton to say about symbols. If you have ever taken a college-level class in art history, in anthropology, you probably have done a great deal of symbol interpretation. I want to go over some of the main ideas and talk about how we began to ascribe meaning to symbols in these studies. So for example, the first major study of this that we get is in 1927 with the book Gravestones in New England and the Men Who Made Them, written by Harriet Merrifield Forbes. Forbes, who was born in 1856, is really the first noteworthy scholar who focuses on headstone carving in New England. And what she starts to do is she starts to look at these headstones and she groups them based on common themes, on common looks, and saying that these all look similar, they were probably carved by this individual, and starting to break them down and categorize them. While a lot of Forbes' work is criticized today in the fact that she misinterpreted many symbols and that she may not have made the right calls about who created what stones, it really was groundbreaking because in 1927, she really opened up this field. That's not to say that people jumped in wholeheartedly into studying gravestones and trying to understand them. And I think a lot of this had to do with cultural reflections. Slate headstones were seen as hopelessly old-fashioned, when the rural cemetery movement came around in 1831, they were largely banned from cemeteries. If you go to places like Mount Auburn, you will not see any slate headstones because they were seen as old-fashioned, dark, dreary, and representative of a completely different ideology. So by the time Forbes comes around, she's almost 100 years after the rural cemetery movement starts. She is right in the thick of things when we talk about the era of memorial parks of flat nondescript markers eventually when forbes dies she will not have a impressive cemetery marker at all because ideology had changed so these were seen as this weird sort of artifact from the past and indeed a lot of the interpretation that we see in the early days reflects this so for example the work of james deets and edwin Dethelfson, Dethelfson, D-E-T-H-L-E-F-S-O-N. Uh, there's a lot of Edwins in this entire episode. There are three Edwins, which I don't think I've ever heard of three Edwins in the same place at the same time ever in any other circumstance. But they wrote an article called Death's Heads, Cherubs, and Willow Trees, um, Experimental Archaeology in Colonial Cemeteries. And in this 1966 article, which is ironically published the same year as Graven Images, they make the argument that artifacts must be studied for both form, so their physical appearance, as well as use. 
What use did they play to a particular role in society? Were gravestones just gravestones? Were they just a way to mark the grave? Or did they symbolize more than that? Were they serving another function for society? Just a couple of years later, in 1974, Dick Rand and Anne Tahitian wrote a, um, an article called uh, Memorial for Children of Change. And what they argue here is that gravestones are actually a civil, not just religious artifact. Now, if you remember me talking about the Puritans, you know that the Puritans had a theocracy. Their entire lives were lived in a state of spiritual unknowing about whether or not they were the elect of God. So gravestones exist in this weird liminal place where in a society where you, if you've seen Puritan meeting houses, they are bare bones, there's nothing, not even a cross. Why these elaborate artistic headstones? Well, because they exist in a liminal state. They are neither purely civil nor purely religious. They exist at the intersection of the two. And so in a very austere and bland society, they are a place where this artistic symbolism is allowed to come out because it is serving a dual purpose. It is making a statement about that religious anxiety, about whether or not one is living a truly Puritan life and is one of the elect and will be with God in the afterlife, but also a civil purpose in the fact that they are record keeping and that they are a reminder of those values that is very publicly visible. All of this ties together with certain ideologies that are put forward in art history at the same time. Probably the biggest folks we need to talk about here are another two Irwins. So the first is Irwin Goodenow. So he wrote, writes a very significant piece of work, and this is actually pretty much his life's work, on Jewish symbolism in the Greco-Roman period. And we see this cross-cultural evaluation, seeing how these symbols work their way into a culture and how they're interpreted, how they're experienced. At the same time, we have the other Erwin, Erwin Panofsky. Panofsky worked at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton. And he is best known for his work on historical ideas and the interpretation of art. He's an art historian. He is probably best known for being the first one to interpret the Arnold Feeding Wedding Portrait, which I'm sure you have seen. It's one of those classic pieces that you see in art history. A husband and wife, Northern Renaissance painting. The wife is in a green velvet dress. They are holding hands. He is wearing a goofy looking hat. There was a great deal of symbolism in this portrait. And Panofsky is the first one to really break it down and say that we can look at the painting and we can read it in a number of different ways. And so basically he said that there were three ways to read an artistic image. The first was perception. Perception would be just the basic facts. There are two figures. They are standing in a room with a bed and a mirror and assorted furniture. The second is iconography, where you interpret that they are well-dressed, that they are holding hands, that they are facing each other, that that is something that looks a heck of a lot like a marriage ceremony, and that you read the cues from that and your own cultural or iconographic basic understanding of the world and say, well, when two people are standing up there and they're holding hands and they're facing each other and they're well-dressed, they're probably getting married. So going from the basic facts, man and woman standing in a room, to saying, well, based on their body language, based on the way that they're arranged, based on what I see in the picture, they're probably getting married. To the third, which he calls iconology, where at that point you ask, why were they painted the way that they were painted? Why were the items that were included, included? Why were they placed where they were placed in the room? What colors are they wearing? Why are they wearing those colors? Why um, does the light hit them the way it does? He does similar interpretations of other images, for example, The Last Supper. It's 12 men sitting around a table. 
okay, where would there be 12 men, or excuse me, 13, plus Jesus? Why would they be sitting around the table? What are they doing? This is probably the Last Supper. Third, why are they arranged the way that they are doing? Why are certain people doing certain things? So all of this basically shows that symbols aren't just symbols, that they can be interpreted in different ways. All of this bleeds forward into what I consider to be the modern era of gravestone studies. And that starts with a man named Peter Benes. And starting in the 70s, he organizes what he calls the Dublin Seminar for New England Folk Life. In 1977, this will evolve into a publication called the Association for Gravestone Studies Newsletter. And so essentially in studying folk life in New England, the heavy focus of many of these original conferences that were held in Boston in the 70s was studying gravestones and their symbolism and their carvers. All of this leads me up to saying symbolism has been a part of gravestone studies since the beginning. There is no gravestone studies without symbols. There is a reason that people are still fascinated by them. I wanted to give a little bit of the background because I think it's really important to understand that a symbol is not just a symbol. A symbol is part of an idea and that when we break it down and say, well, this means this and that means that, it's not really chiseled in stone, (laughs) even though it is. But meanings are not always absolute. Meanings can have multiple meanings to different people based on your cultural interpretation and your understanding of things. I want to talk a little bit about the broad spectrum of different types of symbols. And what I did was I broke them down into essentially five different categories. Like I said, I made a long list and I tried to break them down based on what I thought were the most common. The first and probably most obvious are going to be biblical or religious symbols. The second are going to be allegorical symbols. The third is professional symbols. The fourth is botanical or natural symbols. And then the final, and this is the one that perhaps is one of the most studied, is fraternal symbols. No one of these predominates. Sometimes, particularly when it comes to things like botanicals, Often they are not meant to be super symbolic in the modern day. They can just be things that people like. Sometimes people just like flowers. Sometimes they don't mean it as anything other than a flower. So in some of these cases, these are not absolute meanings. And I like to say that because if what I just talked about for the last 20 minutes tells us anything, symbolism in general is not as simple as it seems. All right, let's start with biblical or religious symbols. The biggest and most obvious is the cross. There's not just one cross, the Greek cross, which is the cross with the arms that are all the same length. In addition to that, there is the Latin cross. That is the one that you probably think of when you think of a cross, where the bottom leg of the cross is longer than the other three sides. The Orthodox cross, which is a traditional cross with the slanted bars put through it. The Celtic cross, the cross with the circle in the center. The cross of Lorraine with an additional bar on it. All of these are different versions of the same idea. The cross being a symbol of Christ's crucifixion. And this is an interesting one because the question is, if there were a modern religion that say was based off someone who was executed on death row, would we have a little noose? Would we have a little electric chair or a little syringe? It's a very interesting symbol, but that's because the cross comes to symbolize more than just the execution of Jesus Christ, but rather as a symbol of the sacrifice that he makes on the cross. 
perfect example of how you can have a symbol which evolves in meaning. Mansion. So this one comes directly from scripture. Many of these do. In my father's house, there are many rooms. The idea that heaven is a mansion for the faithful. The fish. The fish comes from the Greek word ichthys, which is similar to the way that Jesus was written in the early days of the church when Christians were being crucified for their beliefs or they were being fed to the lions. They would secretly paint fishes on their chests to symbolize their Christianity to other followers. The shell, perfect example of another evolving symbol. This is one that has come largely to represent Christians. Many, if you will recall, of the apostles were fishermen. It also can symbolize baptism. If you were baptized back in the day, you may have actually had a shell used to baptize you, symbolizing Christ's baptism in the Jordan. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, symbolizing that Christ is the beginning and end of all things. The finger pointing, an idea of looking towards heaven. The gates of heaven opening up. Very common one that was very popular during the Victorian era. You could see it mass produced on a lot of the Sears and Roebuck stones. The Rock of Ages, this one actually kind of crosses over into allegorical because often you will see a massive rock with a cross on it with a symbolic figure of a woman hanging off the cross. But I have also seen versions of the Rock of Ages, which is God, Christ, where it's just literally a boulder labeled with Rock of Ages. The Crescent and Star, Switching over to Islam, the most common symbol that you will see on Islamic stones, the Star of David. What's very interesting to me is that um, Judaism has a strict prohibition on representations of humans. So if you go into a synagogue, you will never see stained glass windows featuring angels or people. You are allowed to use symbols or physical things, and the same is carried over largely into their cemeteries. But many of the symbols that are common to Jewish cemeteries are actually very modern. If you look at 19th century and earlier Jewish headstones, they almost never have symbols on them. The Star of David largely comes with the rise of Zionism. So this, along with the flag of Israel, the Torah, which is generally represented as books showing one through five for the five books of the Bible, scrolls, copies of the Ten Commandments, all of these very common symbols that you can find on Jewish headstones. Perhaps the most common, and I think often misinterpreted, is the hands of the Kohanim, the priestly class in Judaism. This is often found on descendants of the family whose last name is Cohen. And you will see it is two hands kind of open with the thumbs touching. Another is the Arzit, which is represented as, as a lamp. So if you go into synagogues, you will often see um, boards on the wall that have little lights next to names. This represents a symbolic lighting for the anniversary of death. Another crossover symbol that you may often see is the cross and crown, going back to Christianity, where it is not a symbol cross, but a cross with the crown over it, symbolizing the triumph over death, that through Christ's resurrection, he has triumphed over death. I think it's a good transition to make is that there are a lot of things which tend to be more allegorical, which are often misinterpreted as religious. That's not to say that there are not angels in cemeteries, but the overwhelming majority of figures that you see in cemeteries, particularly female figures, are allegories. They are not angels. Easiest way to tell, do they have wings? If not, it's allegory. Allegories often are the embodiment of certain virtues and values. Faith, a woman holding a cross. Hope, a woman holding an anchor. Charity. Temperance. Justice. These allegorical figures incredibly popular during the Victorian era. Now, are these things absolute? Eh, it depends. 
I would say that faith and hope are probably the two most common that you're going to see. We have all probably seen an allegory of justice, the blind woman holding the scales, but most often we don't see that in a cemetery. We see that elsewhere, usually at a courthouse. Two others that kind of skirt the edge between religious and allegorical, the first being the lamb. Lambs are generally used to symbolize innocence and children. The second being the dove. The dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in Christianity, but doves, because of their white color, also often symbolize purity and innocence, and you will see them on children's headstones. The harp and the lyre are another two. These are traditional, particularly the lyre is a classical symbol. Sometimes they literally are there to symbolize music and a love of music but not always. It's a good thing to mention that a lot of this comes from an appreciation and love of antiquity, particularly when we talk about Victorian symbols. And most of the things that I have talked about so far are Victorian to modern. These are not things that you see on colonial era headstones. Broken things, also very big in Victorian symbolism. The broken off bud or withered bud, a broken column, a broken chain, a tree with limbs cut off, all very common to symbolize a life cut short. It never fails to impress me to see how often and differently these can be interpreted. They love to take these things and they love to run with it. That being said, a chain that is whole versus a chain that is broken symbolize two completely different things, but it can be very confusing because we'll talk about chains again when we get to fraternal symbols. Same thing with a tree. Not every tree symbolizes a life cut short. Some might be a woodsman of the world. There are lots of different ways that many of these common things can be interpreted. Same thing with the column. Columns are often associated with Freemasonry, but not always. Urns. Urns are a particularly fascinating one. Urns are a symbol of death going back to antiquity, largely the Greeks and Romans. Groups that practiced cremation would store remains in urns long before it became popular again in the 1970s. The draped urn, and basically any draped shape, so draped obelisk, draped urns, symbolizes the veil between life and death. This is definitely an example of how people were fascinated with antiquity, because at the time, to cremate an individual would have been horrifying. Even though the first crematorium starts in the 1870s in the United States, it would take another century before cremation catches on in a really meaningful way. But to show that you were educated and erudite, having an urn on your funeral monument showed that you were an appreciator of antiquity and the finer things when it came to art history. The winged hourglass. This one is almost universally popular among cemetery scholars. The winged hourglass, the flight of time, Tempest Fugit, very common symbol, often interpreted as well by fraternal societies. Fraternal societies and general popularity often overlap in many ways. The inverted torch, another very popular one. This is one, again, that borders on pagan, but they make it Christian by doing something very important. So an inverted torch symbolizes a life snuffed out. But often you will see the torches have the flames curling upwards. Even though the flame is upside down, it is curling upwards, which symbolizes a hope in the resurrection. Feathers, feathers often overlap with interpretation of hope, of, you know, a lightness to the soul. Feathers and palms often can be confused. I have seen feathers interpreted as palms, palms interpreted as feathers, which I'll talk about palms in just a second. The next category is short. And I only say this because I think that this is a growing trend, and that is professionalism. Now, historically, there were not a whole heck of a lot of 
professions that were represented by symbols. However, in the last century, this has grown exponentially. So historically, the big ones would be members of the clergy. So whether you're a priest or a minister, having some symbol of your order, whether it was a Catholic priest who may be a member of, say, the Jesuits or another religious order, or ministers. Ministers most often will have an open book of scripture. Sometimes it says Holy Bible. More often than not, it is open to the page of whatever piece of scripture they delivered their last sermon on. The anvil for blacksmiths, another one that is very, very common. Sailors, particularly sailors who are lost at sea, will often have symbols that are associated with their profession. The caduceus is probably the most common. The true caduceus, which I know I've talked about this one in the past, versus the staff of Eclipus. This is a symbol that is generally used for doctors and nurses. Whether or not it is the staff of Eclipus, which is the actual correct symbol, which only has one snake wrapped around the staff versus the two with the wings, which is the symbol of Mercury. The last two big professional organizations that tend to have symbolism on their headstones are going to be police and fire department. A lot of times it will be highly specific to the particular city or area that they served in, which may have their own particular crest. In other instances, there may be a dedicated section, but they are the professions that most often are going to have this. That being said, I think that in the latter half of the 20th century, it becomes far more common as gravestones have gotten smaller to use little representations that mark professions. An apple for a teacher, a palette for an artist, a hard hat for a construction worker. These symbols are overly simplified, but they're still symbols. They tell us something about the person's profession. Does an apple always mean that someone's a teacher? No, but it has become a universal enough symbol that most people, when they think about apples, they associate it particularly with elementary school teachers. Botanical. These are probably the ones that people like the most when it comes to interpreting different symbols. I say this with the caveat that sometimes I think that people just picked out decorative motifs. Starting off with ivy, this is a perfect example. Ivy, I would say in the 1920s through the 1940s, it appears on damn near every headstone. Do I think that they all chose them because ivy, which is an evergreen, is a symbol of eternity? Probably not. I think that it was just a very simple and decorative and pretty thing to put on headstones. The oak, and by extension the acorn, is a symbol of strength. A mighty fortress is our god. The oak is the king of the forest the same way that the lion is the king of the jungle. Willows, as weeping willows, obviously symbolize mourning, but they also symbolize endurance. Um, Willows tend to bend in windstorms. They tend to be very enduring trees that don't have limbs torn off. Roses, of course, are a symbol, uh, symbol of femininity, but also, depending on the religion, they are also a symbol of martyrdom. This is one I think that has largely evolved, and... Today is just something that people like. People think that roses are pretty versus having any particular symbolic meaning. The lily, as we already discussed, is a symbol of purity based on its white color, often associated with allegories of faith. Pine tends to be the same as ivy. Being an evergreen, it is a symbol of uh, eternity and strength. Poppies. Poppies in classical literature go back to the god Morpheus in Greek mythology as a symbol of sleep. We know that heroin is derived from poppies. It is a natural sleep aid. This is a symbol that evolves largely following World War I with the poem in Flanders Field, where the discussion of in Flanders Field, the poppies grow. 
the idea that poppies began to symbolize the sacrifice of not just soldiers in World War I, but many wars since then. They still sell poppies that you can buy around Armistice Day or Veterans Day. Many people chose them as a symbol for those who were killed in war. Shamrocks. Originally a representation of the Trinity. The three leaves of the shamrock represent the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is an interpretation that is started by St. Patrick. Has largely become associated just with Irish heritage. The thistle is a similar example. In the Bible, the thistle is a symbol of tribulation, of suffering, but it is also the national flower of Scotland and has largely come to symbolize Scottish nationality on headstones. Laurel. Laurel is another symbol of immortality and eternity but it's a heavily classical symbol. In the classical period, athletes who won and triumphed in races wore a crown of laurel. Probably the most famous poem that discusses this is to an athlete dying young. Wheat. Wheat represents the bread of life. The bread of life being Christ symbolizes eternal life. So not only does it feed us physically, it feeds us spiritually. Passion flower, um, this is a very heavily Christian symbol. I've only seen a few examples of passion flowers over the years. They're really interesting because they almost look like a flower with a wagon wheel in the center. Um, it symbolized the crown of thorns. Again, very heavily Christian symbol. Acanthus, acanthus leaves are decorative leaves that you see a lot used in architecture. I think this is a good example of one. Technically it talks about overcoming um, adversity, but I think I think acanthus really just, it gets adopted from architecture where it is a nice decorative. When you see like the curled leaves around the corners of things, that's generally acanthus. Ferns were a symbol of humility. Uh, this is one I have not seen represented on a number of headstones, but there are a, a select few. Um, again, very pretty decorative lacy carving. Lotuses, if you listen to the episode that I did about Howard Carter and Egyptian revival architecture, I talked about lotuses. Lotuses symbolize the cycle of life because they open up with the dawn and then they close at the end of the day. And then lastly, the palm, which I mentioned that palms and feathers often can be mistaken for one another. But when you see a figure holding a palm or a palm draped across something, this is a symbol of triumph over death. When Christ entered into Jerusalem, heading to his crucifixion, all of the members of his supporters were standing outside the gates along the road and they were waving palms at him. So it has largely become a symbol of that triumph over death after the resurrection. Lastly, let's talk about fraternal symbols. And fraternal symbols, this one's a little difficult because many of these symbols actually represent multiple groups. So there are symbols which are not necessarily unique to the Freemasons. They may be something used by the Freemasons and the Oddfellows and the Knights of Pythias and the Order of the Eastern Star. A lot of these draw from similar historical mythology, similar historical origins. They're interpreting the same ancient text, and as a result, they adopt the same symbol. These are the ones I think that people tend to be the most fascinated by. People love secret societies. They love anything that they don't know about. So the main groups that I'm going to talk about here are the Freemasons, the Oddfellows, the Knights of Pythias, the or uh, the Elks, not the Orcs, the Order of the Eastern Star, which is the female branch of the Freemasons, the Rebecca's, which is the female branch of the Oddfellows, Woodsmen of the World, debatable about whether or not they actually fall into the Fraternal Order, the Shriners, and lastly, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. There are more the Benevolent Order of the Moose. Like, there, there are dozens of these fraternal societies. I just decided to cover the most common. Now, the most common that you are probably going to see 
is the compass, often known as the Mason's Compass. This goes back to the origins of Freemasonry with the Guild of Masons, who probably built the cathedrals of Europe. The All-Seeing Eye. This one really is used by multiple orders. Almost all of them have some version of this. This ties into the idea that if you are going to pledge one of these organizations, that you do have to acknowledge a belief in a higher being. The Tent. The tent, again, seen in multiple orders. A lot of this goes back to the origin stories of these particular orders, which, again, are being based on tribal history, being based on the Temple of Solomon. So a lot of these symbols all go back to the same ideas. The Eagle of Lagash, which is the double-headed eagle, you will most often see this on the graves of 33rd Order Masons, The same thing with the triangle with the number 33 in the middle of this. So this is in the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. It is the highest level. I did a whole episode about Freemasons and a whole episode about Oddfellows. For a lot more in-depth analysis of these symbols, I highly recommend you go back and listen to those two episodes. The three links. This is the most common symbol of the Oddfellows. It will often have the letters F, L, and T for faith, love, and truth. The three symbols of the Oddfellows go back to the way that chains are traditionally made. Again, something that I discussed in the podcast I specifically dedicated to the Oddfellows. The Hive, the idea that we are more productive as a collective group, a very tight-knit idea that is very close to many of the fraternal orders. The Twin Columns, in more elaborate plots for Freemasons, you will often see the twin columns, one representing the earthly plane, one representing the celestial plane. These two pillars often bracket the entrance to areas where Freemasons are buried. The elk, self-explanatory. There is a bronze elk in almost every cemetery that has an elk section, one of the most easily recognizable things. Another symbol that you may see on elk's monuments is a clock. And it's set to the hour of 11 o'clock. And this has to do with a very central portion of the elk ceremonies, particularly their funeral ceremonies, which is called the 11 o'clock toast. So if you see a monument that has that clock on there, it will always be set to the same time. One of the most elaborate elk's tombs I've seen is in New Orleans, and they actually have the full 11 o'clock toast posted on the back wall of the tomb along with the clock. The Seal of the Woodsman of the World. Now, I set this one aside because the Woodsman of the World was technically a fraternal organization. But if you look at the way it was organized, it was far more of just an insurance company. And the Woodsman of the World actually still exists as a modern insurance company. They have a pretty standard seal, which you will see on many. But people often misinterpret and just look at any tree stump headstone and assume it's Woodsman of the World. No. It's not. There was a specific symbol, and essentially what it meant was that you paid into an organization that when you died would provide you with a headstone. It it doesn't have the symbolism. It doesn't have the lodges. It doesn't have a lot of the organizational structure that many of these other fraternal organizations have, which is why I always tend to categorize it less as a fraternal organization and more as an insurance or benevolent company. And lastly, the Shriners, the most common symbol here is going to be the scimitar and crescent, um, where the scimitar is suspended from the crescent. Almost universal for anybody that's a Shriner. I have seen some, and these tend to be more modern, that actually do incorporate the fez. 
which is pretty cool. I am positive that there are some symbols that I missed on that list. I tried to cover the most common and I know I probably rushed through them pretty quickly. At the end of the day, what I want to communicate about symbols is that they aren't as simple as they look. They don't always just mean one thing. Often symbols may mean something different today than they did 100 years ago than they did 200 years ago. There is an entire career that can be made out of interpretation of symbols, particularly in understanding them in a cultural context. I can't really say what symbols will look like in the future. I think that there's a pretty safe bet to say that 50 or 100 years from now, gravestones that have, say, a Nintendo or a barbecue on them will probably not be interpreted the same way that we could today. Will they change? Will they stay the same? It's hard to say. Are we becoming more homogenous in our culture? I think, if anything, we are diversifying more. But understanding that symbolism is not as simple as saying, this means that. That symbols, as I discussed with reception theory, can often have multiple meanings. That often their meanings evolve over time. Often, symbolism takes a backseat to personal preferences in terms of design or aesthetics. But at the end of the day, symbols are an important part of explaining to us what a particular culture valued, what they understood about the world, and give us important information about the individual who's buried there. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, a few favors. First, follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. I share lots of interesting tidbits, fun things that I see, uh, connect you with fellow people who are doing interesting things in the cemetery world. Secondly, if you're enjoying the podcast and think you have friends, family, relatives, dental hygienists, whoever it might be that would also enjoy the podcast, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It does help make me much more searchable on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get this podcast every week. And I will thank you. I have just been floored by my download numbers recently. I am loving the fact that you guys are not only downloading the re-records, but you are listening. I have the next episode already recorded and I am working on editing that as well. I'm actually getting towards the end of the re-records, so I will be able to do more completely fresh content soon. But it really has been exciting to re-explore these topics and do it in the way that I really wanted to. So thank you for that. But for now, have a wonderful week. Stay safe. I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.